an automated voice messaging system. No, it hasn't. Gardner. <laughs> there you go. It's not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. To leave a callback number, press 5. <laughs> Jesus, I thought I told you kids to answer the goddamn phone when I call. Yeah. Uh, I think I wet myself. <laughs> Come on, I pissed my pants. <laughs> it's Paul uh, Alfred. Yeah, you bastard. <laughs> All right. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Mr. Scott. Shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. Destruction sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found Mr. Spock! I'm talking to Mr. Spock, understand? Star Trek Monthly Monday number 67. This is the original school, old school TOS original series version. Kirk all the way, although we're going very light on the Kirk this episode, and you'll find out why in a few minutes. But I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with my bestest Star Trek buddy, Scott Gardner. Hello. And, How's it uh, going? <laughs> It's been a slow month as far as, like, I don't really have any, haven't gotten any good Star Trek swag. I think I'm about to lose an auction on a Star Trek t-shirt. Aww. So the less said about that, the better. <laughs> um, but 
I hear tell we got lots of emails. Yes, we do. I was trying to think if I had anything uh, Star Trek related to, to bring to the uh, the opener, and I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, not not too much new happening on the on the Star Trek front for me late, here lately. So yeah, we'll go ahead. We'll dive right into the emails. We got several here, and uh, they've been stacking up for a bit. So it is time to get the emails addressed. First one here is from our good buddy, Mike Petit. And he writes here about Star Trek Monthly Monday number 26. I don't know what episode this was. I'll be honest. Uh, this one's 26? backdated a bit. Yeah. That's a long time. That's 41 that- episodes ago. No. Hmm. Listen, we're in, we're in Monthly Monday 67, my friend. I wonder if this is a misprint or yeah, something. Maybe he's here. talking about sixties. Maybe he's talking about last month. We'll find out, I guess. I don't know. Talking because it's the the email itself is dip, uh, is dated September of this year. Oh. So <laughs> I don't know. Let's see what he says here. He says, uh, "Hey guys," he says, "I'm sorry I've been away for a while due to uh, various reasons in the spring. I quit social media and podcasting uh, listening for a while, but I'm back and e- eager to catch up on Star Trek Monthly Monday." Since the Savage Curtain was one of the first uh, Trek episodes I ever saw in an early 1980s run. Now, so how long ago did we cover the Savage Curtain? That wasn't that long ago, right? It was a while ago. It was. Was it a while ago? Yeah, six or eight months ago, probably. I'm thinking. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, maybe it is. Not Star all the way Trek back to 26. 26. <laughs> maybe it's 56 know. or something. <laughs> Says uh, the first one I ever actually saw was that which survives, and yet somehow I went on to become a fan. Fascinating, yeah. I was just <laughs> gonna say, and you you stuck with the show. Uh, he says it was before our family owned a VCR, though. Uh, but since I was getting into the show, I set up an audio recorder to catch the audio. Yep, we did the same thing, the exact same thing. I admit I haven't seen the episode in a long time. But I did use Surak in my Strange New World stories and referenced, i.e. made up, the costume as having been his unique visual expression of the Idic philosophy. Pardon me as I sing Springsteen's Glory Days. <laughs> says, I disagree with Scott, though, about it being surprising that only Spock uh, knows who Surak is. Remember, in TOS, Vulcans were very secretive about their culture. See Spock's reluctance to discuss Pon Far in a mock time especially if, perhaps, they thought relating the history of their planet would only raise uncomfortable questions about their relationship to the Romulans. I can understand why Vulcans might not be too eager to talk about Surak to Outworlders. How happy are you or I when people get facts wrong and say ignorant things about our heroes? Also, unlike such uh, such figures as Jesus... To be a disciple of Surak is to be about following his teachings, not about worshiping him. Surak uh, himself would probably not mind if his name were unknown, so long as his principles were being put into practice. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? I would say that's that's accurate. I would put, like, I don't know. I always pictured Vulcan philosophy and religion to be closer to, like, say, like Zen Buddhism or something like right. that. More of a meditational control over the mind sort of thing. And, yeah, and and the ego is a not a very Vulcan sort of thing. 
Right. So, yeah, I, I, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, that, that's true because I, I was applying a very human standard to the Vulcans, which is, you know, we're proud of our, you know, uh, our outstanding heroes and our, you know, the people that have had an, a, a positive uh, impact on our culture and everything. So, you know, we expect, you know, we, we hold up people like Lincoln or whatever, and we would expect, you know, other friends that we would make in the galactic community to, to know these people too, I guess, but maybe not, you know, it wouldn't work the same way with the Vulcans because they don't go around, you know, erecting statues to Serac right. or, you know, espousing his philosophy to everybody. I, I guess that kind of washes. He says, regarding Kirk and green women in the original series, I agree that Kirk as womanizer is a lazy reading of the character and he never actually hooked up with a green woman in the TOS era. In Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, however, when Marta uh, plants a smacker on a most unwilling Kirk, McCoy's response is, what is it with you? At the time, various press articles interpreted that moment as the franchise's nod to Kirk's reputation as a ladies' man. Do you think that's the case? If so, uh, it ties into Miss Palmer's comment in The Menagerie Part 1 She's merely mentioned. Uh, she merely mentioned she knew you, sir, which seems to be playing into Kirk's own awareness that he has or is developing such a reputation. There's a line similar to this in Into Darkness, actually. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think in a lot of ways the series itself established Kirk. I, I you know, I, don't I like always to think of I, Kirk yeah. as a womanizer, but he's just he's a ladies man. I mean he gets around, you know, well, he, you he know, gets his fair share, you know. I think the way that they made Kirk was I think it was A, Gene Roddenberry and he got Gene Roddenberry and William Shatner sort sort of collaborating on a character. Right. And they were in the swinging sixties, you know, let it all hang out sort of era. And Gene Roddenberry was known for being just sort of like, hey, you know, he he was not a one-woman man. And I always thought Kirk, instead of being as much a womanizer, um, in that future time, sex was not, there wasn't as much, you know, social... Um, uh, gravity put on sex. It wasn't probably as big a deal for two people to hook up and go make love and then go in their own, you know, go back to their positions and, you know, or 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 less jealousy, you know, more sort of a, I, I don't want to say swinging lifestyle, but just more of a where sex has lost its taboo, right? Um, sort of thing. And um, I think that was, but in, at the same time, the '60s were still. It, they they thought it was forward thinking, but it was still kind of lecherous and like, "Hey, ladies, you know," as we'll find out later in this episode, we'll have a good example of that. I <laughs> I think that this was their picture of the future guy, and rather than being a womanizer, Kirk was just very successful. Right uh, at it, whereas, you know, McCoy is always trying to get in some lady's space skirt, pants, <laughs> a tunic, and uh, but he he doesn't, get, you know, and when he does, he's like, I'm staying on this planet, so, you know, forever. <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> Kirk was very successful, so it may seem like a womanizer, but I don't know if what he does is looked at as womanizing in in his time period. You know, I don't think it's looked at as he's taking advantage of these women women. You're you're sort of assuming that they're on an equal footing and they're intelligently like going like, Hey, I just want a piece of this little short Canadian captain guy. <laughs> and you know, that, that that it's as much their ideas, you know, it's a mutual thing. And, you know, though I I mean, if you got it, why not use it? And it's a TV show. Why, you know, you want to get you want to get the lead guy in the clinch all the time. I thought that that reference in that movie was a direct acknowledgement of that. I didn't find it shocking that they acknowledged it. I just thought it was a funny line because I I didn't think it was scandal that <laughs> someone would acknowledge that Kirk gets laid a lot, especially McCoy of all people. He's there all the time, so he knows. <laughs> He's had to treat him for VD a th- number of times. That's that's one of the parts of that movie that stands out in my mind because of the humor of it. Because even in the dankest, you know, Klingon prison, Kirk's getting a little. And he, <laughs> even when he's old and in his, you know, his, you know, um, corset, Shatner corset, he's still he's still getting some from a hot model sort but of course it's a shapeshifter so it's really it's really kind of gross <laughs> he doesn't care he doesn't care hey doesn't look like a shapeshifter now looks like a <laughs> malaysian model or something wasn't it like imam or something like imam that? yeah yeah who ends up like marrying yeah i'll i'll make out with david bowie's wife sure <laughs> so <laughs> make out with david bowie I don't care. I'm Kirk. What are you talking about? David Bowie's almost a girl. I don't give a shit. <laughs> uh, Mike continues here. He says, and a juvenile P.S. to Chris. You said presidential duties. He says, yeah, still smarting from the JAG officer bit last time I was on your show. <laughs> Savage Curtain would be a fun episode to revisit from the Mirror Universe perspective. Oh, Instead God. of Lincoln. Yeah. Says instead of Lincoln, we might get the mirror Zephram Cochran. Since didn't Enterprise season four establish that the divergent point was Cochran killing the Vulcan emissary? That's true. I'm thinking it would be Hitler. I uh, yeah, that would be that, possible, I mean, that'd be right? Wouldn't Hitler yeah, be, that'd be an interesting way to go? In the mirror what universe, if the wouldn't Hitler potentially be like held up? Like you know, that you would well, think Hitler would have done a lot better in the mirror universe. Well, I think it would be really interesting if the divergence point was what if Kirk saved uh, Edith Keeler? That would be the, that would be great if that was the divergence point. Oh, and that created the mirror universe. Yeah, exactly. Oh my then the god, Nazis won the war. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that'd be an interesting take on John Byrne. Are you listening? Make that into a photo. <laughs> Uh, and he says, and then we'd get uh, to find out what the uh, Vulcan big bad in the Mirror Universe might be. Remember Mira Spock's comment to Mira Sulu about his operatives, and some of them are Vulcans, as though they're a species known for logical and efficient cruelty in the Marvel, or excuse me, in the Mirror rather, in the Mirror Universe. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, I basically figured the Vulcans were more or less Romulans in the Mirror Universe. Right. Yeah. 
says anyway enjoyed the episode and i'll be touch again soon and that's from uh, mike biblio mike potite got another one here i think this is from a new uh i don't want to say a new listener but i think this is a new uh, voice in email here i'm not sure you tell me if we've gotten one from this fellow before it's uh <laughs> the title of this email is The Finger. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's giving us The Finger. This is from Zane Kroll. I, I don't oh. recognize this name, so I think this is a, as a new writer here. Excellent. He says, good day, freaks. He says, just wanted to drop you a line to say how much I enjoy Star Trek Monthly Mondays. I've recently listened to the entire archive of Star Trek Monthly Monday episodes <laughs> and found them very entertaining. In fact, listening to these podcasts got me to rewatch the entire original series this yes. summer. Mission accomplished. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. He says, this was the first time I've seen uh, many of these episodes in close to 30 years. And I think as a whole, the show holds up extremely well. Well, so do we. He says, Scott mentioned James Doohan's missing finger during a few monthly Mondays and how they tried to hide it. While rewatching this series, I found myself always watching his right hand and how they would obscure his missing digit. Yeah, me too. I do that all the time. So they even went so far as to use a stunt right hand when Scotty swears in during the hearing on the Enterprise in Wolf in the Fold. That I did not know. So imagine my utter astonishment when watching That Which Survives and on the screen for a split second is a full-screen close-up of Duan's right hand, which clearly shows the missing finger. And he says, I've included a screen capture, and sure enough, he did. And it's it's there plain as day, man. He is missing his, uh, I believe it's his middle, yeah, his middle finger on his uh, right hand. Oh, no. That's his, yeah, right hand. I wonder who he gave the finger to. <laughs> the wrong person, evidently, because he snatched it clean off. Says, I guess the third season budget cuts made stunt hands out of the question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Assignment Earth episode. Have either of you read the Assignment Earth miniseries that IDW published a few years ago? Scott, I know you have, haven't you? I think I have scattered issues of it. I don't think I have all, I think it's five issues. I don't think I have the whole thing. I have not read it. And I desperately wanted to read it in time for this episode and ran out of time to do it. But you, you know, you and I were just talking before we got recording about, uh, about covering, uh, some of this John Byrne, uh, IDW stuff. And I think that needs to happen. Maybe it needs to happen starting with that. So. I might try to track that down on eBay cause yeah. I love all his, so far I've loved all his IDW stuff. And now after, yeah, I'm ready to get some more assignment earth. Yeah, I have not yet read a John Byrne IDW Star Trek book that I have not enjoyed. Uh, some of them, you know, incredibly so. Uh, Zane says here, he says, I know you're both John Byrne fans, and uh, this is another one of uh, the terrific Star Trek books he's produced for them recently. Anyway, thanks again for the hours of entertainment. Keep up the stellar work, and that's from Zane Crawl. Thank you, Zane, and uh, don't be a stranger, man. Write in again, because I really enjoyed uh, your email, and thanks for the picture, because that's uh, both cool and creepy at the same time. <laughs> that's how we like it. <laughs> and we've got one here. This is from our good buddy, Greg Kirkman, and he writes, Star Trek Monthly Monday uh, number 66. So this is what? This is the last one, last right? Last month. This is the most recent one, yeah. Oh, this is a very recent email, too. 
says, Greeting Freaks, he says, uh, in the latest episode, I enjoyed your tangents regarding the future of Trek and the reboot process that so many beloved properties are currently going through. I've made my feelings on Abram, uh, Abrams' Trek films well known, and I agree with Scott. There are certain lines that uh, equal an automatic fail and or automatic skip, and Abrams' films cross several of them. As for Orky or Goyer or whoever is directing Star Trek Three, possibly another search for Spock, unless we want to remake the movie slightly out of order so we will uh, be perceived as edgy. <laughs> He's got that all as a title, by the way. I think that's funny. Says, I really don't have uh, any interest in uh, what he's bringing to the table. Orky has a history as someone who will pop into forums and argue with fans who bash New Trek, and he also likes to rant about 9-11 conspiracy theories. I'm not filled with confidence that he knows uh, how to get New Trek on track, so he's friggin' wrote the last two movies, as well as a bunch of other films that I either hated or have actively stayed away from, including The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is saying something because Spider-Man is my favorite superhero, yet I haven't bothered to see this film. Anyway, I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with once you finish your coverage of TOS. As noted last time, the Gold Key comics would be an interesting material for Get Scott to read a goddamn Star Trek comic segment, which I kind of like that idea, and I kind of dread that idea <laughs> at the same time. As You're of this not writing, the masochist that I am. <laughs> as of this writing, well, you know what? That's a that's a perfect opportunity to talk about something that you and I were talking about before we started recording, which is, guys, I had every intention this episode of doing that fast forward that I talked about before about kind of doing a quick burn through of the remaining issues of DC Star Trek that we've been covering prior to when Peter David took over. And I, the way I had envisioned it was was trying to kind of ape Scott Rifen. So if you guys heard Scott Rifen do uh, Marvel Star Wars in five minutes a while back on uh, Star Trek Monthly, or excuse me, Star Wars Monthly Monday, I thought it was brilliant. And I was going to try to, you know, semi-steal that bit and, and ape that style and, and do a quick burn through of those remaining issues. So here's the truth. Not only was I really, 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 really up against the clock as far as getting all that shit read, but when I finally made the time to sit down and do it, I didn't get but just a few pages in. And I was like, this is painful. With all apologies to everybody who, you know, all the creators that worked on putting those issues out. That stuff sucks. And I just, I couldn't get through it. Literally, it's literally that bad. Because the, the issue I started with, I could not tell you the issue number. But it was another chapter of that story that was a sequel to The Apple which is already an episode that I think is shit to begin with, but then the sequel is just that much worse. The art's terrible. The story was bad. Um, I'm trying to remember who the writer was, but he clearly didn't have a grasp on the characters or the mechanics of Star Trek or the you know, just. And it was just top to bottom. It was just excruciating. So, you know, I'm gonna put it out there to to the listeners. Let us know what you want us to do. If you're just masochistic bastards that just want to see me suffer and have to read through <laughs> that shit, then I will. Ah. But, you know, if you're merciful human beings and you actually want us to cover something that's good that you've been itching for us to do for a while, like, say, the John Byrne IDW stuff or something like that, then we'd be more than happy to just go, you know what, let's just kind of start getting loosey-goosey and do stuff we actually want to cover. Because I, be I love doing this. And yeah, quick. I mean... I 
I love doing the Star Trek comics, but we just we hit us we just happened to hit a period where they're just not good, and I mean really not good. So anyway, let me know what you think <laughs> on that idea. Uh, where did I lose myself here? Uh, as of this writing, I've nearly finished reading the five uh, key collection trades myself. And it's been a wild ride. John Byrne has teased that the series would make my head explode with its wildly off-model nature, but this hasn't happened yet. I've managed to survive the likes of red and blue turtle people, people, space zombies, living sons, and Kirk with an afro. So I'm doing okay. Kirk with an afro? Seriously? I just got, well, I just got Enterprise Logs 3, which has the Kirk with an afro story in it. Oh, I think great. I mentioned it with... with I up, think you did, now that you say basically that. Basically, they put him in disguise, and that's his disguise. They put yeah. an afro on him. Yeah, because I think I made an I Am Curious Black joke, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. And <laughs> the first Star Trek comic I ever got was the Blue Turtle ones. Which is a bizarre. That story's disturbing. Wasn't that a Sting album? Huh? Dream of the Blue Turtles? Or yes. Dream, or Dream of the Blue Turtle People. <laughs> Speaking of Burn, I do hope that you get around to covering. Oh, here we go. Get around to covering his Trek work eventually. His photo novel comic series, New Visions, is some of the best, quote unquote, new Trek I've read, as it perfectly captures the feel of the show and reads like uh, the best sort of fan fiction one could hope for. Mm hmm. And my uh, offer still stands since I've been around, uh, excuse me, since I've been there on the ground floor for all his Trek projects and have discussed the nitty gritty details with him. I'd be happy to sit in for your coverage or perhaps provide some detailed trivia notes for your use. Absolutely. I like this idea. And the less work I have to do for these goddamn things, Amen. the happier I am. <laughs> also, a few episodes back, I alluded to the fact that that I'd made a small contribution to New Visions. Now that the issue in question has been published, I can clarify. The USS Gregory, which appears in the Janice Rand backup story in New Visions number two, is a photograph of my scratch-built model of the USS Ventura from Byrne's crew series with the name and number modified in Photoshop by Byrne. I was quite humbled when he contacted me and asked if I could... uh, snapped some photos of my model for his latest issue and even more humbled when he renamed it after me. Damn, that's cool. Wow. That's really cool. The ship has uh, even made it in, uh, made it onto memory. Omega, one of the lowest tier wikis for non canon Yeah. I've never even heard of that one. I know about memory alpha and memory beta. I've never heard of a memory Omega, but that's still pretty damn cool. Uh, I can't tell you how great it feels to have contributed a teensy tiny bit of lore of Star Trek. Well, you know, not so teensy, you know, teeny tiny now, man. It's out there. I think that's pretty friggin' cool, man. I'd 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 be touting that all over the place, man. I'd like. I need to get the subsequent put that on billboard and everything. I know he's put out the the Fumetti version of the the next uh, Mirror Universe. Ah. Oh episode but he might have more he's been i guess he had like at least four or five of them planned out and it's going to be a regular thing they're they're pricey they're eight bucks a piece but they're See, beautiful as of right now i have not seen any of them and i, I i've got I the first one with gary up. mitchell in it and it's really good yeah i need to get caught up because i i do love his stuff you know his trek stuff uh 
Greg continues here. He says, anyway, uh, there are indeed a heck of a lot of Trek comics and books featuring the TOS crew for you guys to potentially cover. Aside from the gold key stuff, there's also Marvel's early voyages, untold voyages, and other such series from the 90s to say nothing of all the recent IDW books. IDW also recently reprinted the long-lost Star Trek newspaper strips that ran from 1979 to 1983, which are well-regarded by fans. The strips are set during that interesting little-explored second five-year mission, which which came in between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. I want that but if yeah I'm not mistaken that was i think that was the one that was reprinted like uh uh you know it was like in a hardcover or something it was really expensive as i recall and that's why i didn't get it but i've been trying to find that somewhere uh you know digitally so i could read it because i really want to check it out but uh i would love to see that because that that's the era of Trek that uh, that really does fascinate me the most is that that period between those two movies. So yeah, I've been trying to find copies of that somewhere, but I am not averse to uh, to getting the paper of it either if I could find it you know inexpensively. But I, I just I remember the original solicits for it. I want to say it was it was at least a hundred bucks. I think. Well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it'd be different if it was something tried and true that I knew I was going to like. But that's the other thing, yeah. too, is I can't shell out that kind of money for something I might look at and go, yeah, I don't dig this, you know. Uh, anyway, he wraps up by saying, whatever direction you guys end up going in, I'm confident it'll be a fun ride. And that's from Greg Kirkman. Thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. That was a great email. Thanks to everybody who has written in, and uh, as of the moment, I believe that totally catches us up on Star Trek Monthly Monday email. So the bag is empty, folks. Write in. Fill that bag back up, because we need email. i like to know what you guys are thinking about the show. I'm just flabbergasted. We're caught up. (laughs) We are. So are we ready to get into the meat and potatoes, I guess? I think we're pretty much ready to go. Uh-huh. Now, I'm going to I'm going to give you a choice, sir. Okay. We've been oh, over the long history of this show. We have been somewhat waffling back and forth between synopses from different sources. Yeah. So I'm going to let you choose. Would you like the synopsis out of the Star Trek Compendium by Alan Asherman or out of the Nitpicker's Guide by Phil Ferrand? I'm going to go Nitpicker's Guide this time just randomly. Uh-huh. Right. And of course, so, we're talking about the episode. This I wanted to say This Island Earth. <laughs> this Island Earth. Yeah, what the hell? Oh, that works. Of course, I mean Assignment Earth. Captain Kirk, you interfere with me, you'll change history. program flight path. And destroy it, of course. You can't. We're going to lay an H-bomb on somebody somewhere. Computers indicate an impact somewhere in the heart of the Euro-Asian continent. Get me the 
president. Roberta, you've got to let me finish what I started, or World War III will begin in six minutes. Now, let me ask you, before we get into this, did you realize that this is, uh, you know, of course, they didn't really have such a thing back then when this happened, but using a, a current day term, did you realize that this is the season finale for the second season? Yes. I did not realize I just that. read a, a book recommended to me by Scott Rifen by a couple of the producers of the original Star Trek called Inside Star Trek. And they, you know, they were talking about this. So take out the season and try to, and basically, it's kind of a way to do on the cheap. A, um, oh, uh, uh, what do you call it? I want to keep saying trailer, but you know, the, where, where you do a, um, the word this moron is looking for a uh, preview episode pilot. of a series to to pilot pitch a series, right. And instead of just shooting one that, you know, why not put it in Star Trek? So that way it's an episode, but at the same time, they can use that to try to sell the show and spin it off. And uh, it also gets put out there and you can see, you know, what kind of ratings it gets. Apparently, (laughs) feedback (laughs) wasn't that good because we never got an, I don't know if it would be an assignment Earth. TV show or if it would be, you know, Gary Seven or whatever they would have called it, but we never got it. Well, you know, here's the funny thing that I was thinking about is that obviously to this very day, people want to continue to mine Star Trek. So why did nobody ever pick this up? Oh, you know, my rather God. Rather than spin off umpteen different versions of Trek, everything from Next Gen to DS9 to Enterprise, why did nobody ever go back and go, hey, you know what? There was a failed, uh, there was pilot. A failed pilot right there buried in the middle of Star Trek, the original series. Why don't we see what we can do with that? And they never did, and oh, that's very odd. Can you see a series of movies starring Daniel Craig? Yeah. I could totally see him. I see. I it's wonder like if that's seven. why it didn't happen because maybe they couldn't get the original guy or something. But I wonder how. Crucial... I don't remember what it is that that it did, why it didn't exactly why it didn't fly. I think it just come down to ratings more than anything. I mean, Star Trek itself was kind of on life support at that yeah, time, right. if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, it's a strange. It was a strange series to try to launch a series from. Honestly, because Star Trek got the second season because of the letter writing. Well, well, you know, you know, it was it was a way of Roddenberry trying to pitch something, I'm sure. Or did it? I'm trying to remember. Did it get the third season because of the? Yeah, it got the third Third season season. because of the letter writing campaign. And then there was another one in the third season, but they they didn't do it. They didn't renew it a second time. They had to kind of struggle to get the second season, too, you know, so. Yeah. All right, so Assignment Earth. Now, I did uh, my homework this time around, and I'm I'm always curious because neither one of these damn books lists the air dates. Like, you know, for when we do Star Trek The Next Generation, the companion book that I use for that lists the air dates. But neither one of these TOS books lists the air date. I always like to know when did these actually air. So this originally aired... March 29th, 1968. So it's about two weeks older than me and about three months older than you. So yep. <laughs> we're as old as this episode, which is pretty goddamn old. 
So Assignment Earth, this is what the book's got to say. It says, while doing uh, historical research in orbit around Earth during the year 1968, the Enterprise is struck by a powerful transporter beam. Now, I'm going to stop right there. That's one of the weirder elements of this thing, is that why would a transporter beam do what it's doing to the Enterprise in this episode. It's like buffeting it and rocking it all over. It's like it's being hit by torpedoes. Yeah, or like it it's a, an actual beam going through, like a physical thing traveling through space. Well, it might right. be his technology is different than... Yeah, I guess. Says, Moments later, Gary Seven materializes on the transporter pad. He claims to be human, though he has lived for many years on a planet thousands of light years distant. According to Seven... The inhabitants of the planet have trained a select group of humans to help Earth survive this difficult time. Kirk recognizes that another explanation may exist. Gary Seven may be a member of an alien invasion force. As Kirk and Spock discuss the situation, Seven escapes and beams down to an office in New York City. Using the office's sophisticated facilities, Seven travels to Cape Kennedy. Hmm, no he doesn't. On this day, the United States will launch an orbiting platform containing a nuclear warhead. Quickly, Seven makes his way to the actual missile and modifies it. Back in his office after liftoff, Seven alters the missile's course and arms the warhead. At this point, Kirk and Spock arrive, brandishing phasers. Seven quickly explains that, he, uh, that they must not stop him from detonating the warhead a hundred miles above the surface. This close call with disaster will frighten world leaders into rethinking the arms race. Kirk allows him to proceed, and Seven's mission is successful. Now, the reason I said that Kirk, uh, that uh, Seven does not travel to Cape Kennedy is that clearly, in the footage that they're using, that's Cape Kennedy. But in the actual episode, they call it... Where did I write it down here? They call it McKinley, which just kind of confused me as like why not just call it what it is I, i'm wondering was there some reason for that were they not allowed to or something that just was a little bit confusing yeah. to me you know why they didn't just call a duck a duck you know but yeah it was it clearly was cape kennedy because uh, there was a lot of moments in this that i was just kind of geeking out over oh my i, I kept calling logan out you know because he was in his room doing you know whatever doing homework or whatever and i kept calling him out going Look, look, we were there. We were there. <laughs> so it was, it was cool because we were just at Kennedy uh, recently. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Put your homework anyway. down and watch Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what do you what do you got on this one? Um, I like this a lot more than I re- I haven't seen this since I was a little tyke. Since I, I if I remember if I recall right, this one really wasn't in rotation of the syndicated ones too much. You didn't right. probably because it was an unsuccessful pilot that really didn't have a lot of the Star Trek crew in it. It mostly focused on Gary Seven and <sighs> Terry Gar. But um Terry Gar. <laughs> um That being said, I that annoyed me as a child, but I remember watching this. That like this is one of the early episodes, like Devil in the Dark, that I remember seeing as just a little shaver. And I always remember the scene where he's crawling along the catwalk with the cat. Yeah. And try and 
and it being just a strange episode because it was mixing quote unquote modern times in it, you know. Right. And it was set in modern times. Only a few, you know, but I, if I was like six years old, it was only a few years from when I was born. But uh, I think as far as the, the Star Trek element goes, this is a crappy episode of Star Trek. <laughs> All the, star, the scenes focusing on the crew... Like the the framing is very squared off. It's almost like Christmas special guest shot, you know. Here's Scotty yeah. in the in engineering doing his thing here, but that doesn't happen much. They have one neat scene with Spock with the cat where he's like, I, "I'm strangely drawn to this creature," or or whatever. But um, you know, and there's a, a good, good point, scene with was... Kirk in his goofy Gilligan hat too. <laughs> that's a good point because I was trying to get a feel for my feelings and why I felt differently about this episode. And I think you hit the nail on the head because for one, this is the only time I can remember uh, off the top of my head. Maybe you'll think of, an, of another instance that I'm forgetting, but this is the only time I can think of where Kirk and Spock and basically the, the entire Enterprise crew are almost in the in they're the bad guy position they're, they're, in this. Well, yeah, they're guests, they're, but also they're they're almost cast as as almost the villains of the piece because they're mucking. They're, they're trying. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're good. Exactly, but also, you know, the whole guest thing. I was trying to get a feel for again. This this feels very odd as a Star Trek episode, and yeah. and you you kind of hit it for me. Uh, did you ever see, I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. I think it was something like Legends of the Superheroes or something. And it was one of those cheesy ass 70s, you know, jam piece things. But it, it was a, it was like a made for TV special kind of thing. And it had all the DC heroes in it. And reprising their roles of Batman and Robin were Adam West and Burt Ward, who I think, I think seen that clearly scene. look uncomfortable during the entire thing. And that's yes. kind of what this reminds me of in a, in yeah. a funny kind it's of like way. It's like they called them out a Christmas vacation just to, to shoot a couple shots, you know? Right, right. And 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 Kirk and uh, you know, Shatner and Nimoy were like, L listen, man, I don't want to wear my stop wearing my street clothes they're just like just wear whatever you got on you're going back to 68 or whatever we'll throw a couple different hats on spock and that's that you know that see i'm afraid though that it makes it sound like like i'm being you know critical because i really do dig this oh this I, is a great I, episode i've always liked this one but i like it even more as an adult now although there were a couple weird you know a couple things jumped out to me in a way that they never really did when i was a kid well i don't think i liked it as a kid because i wanted a star trek episode Right. Oh, I know. I always liked this one, and it, it's funny. I had I forgotten really. all about it, but you were talking about being a kid, and your lasting memory was uh, was Gary Seven on the catwalk, and that reminded me that you know, yeah, I remember that same thing as a kid. I can remember being over at my grandparents' house and me and Randy watching this when we were just you know little shits and uh, and seeing uh, Seven on the on the catwalk as well. And I think that's the sort of thing that sticks with you as a kid because you believe it that he really is up there and there's so there's that danger factor it's you know, a nice, what if, what if a, he slips or something it's a nice special effect shot actually yeah it, it is. doesn't look as it's canned but it doesn't look as canned as a lot of those shots look it's it was very effectively done 
And I liked how they said they were bouncing, you know, the their video off of our satellites. Mm-hmm. So it was almost so it almost explained why you were getting a shot that looked like it was from a helicopter circling the Although if you notice even on the and I watched the the you know remastered version there were a lot of shots of the rocket that were a still photograph and there were schmutz on the photograph there were like these <laughs> I went literally to wipe it off this I was like is something on my screen because there's little black dots, and and I'm going to like wipe it off the screen, and then it cuts to another scene, and they're gone, and then it cuts back, and they're in the exact same spot, and I'm like, oh my god, they used a dirty picture for this, not a dirty <laughs> picture, but a you know a picture <laughs> on it. <laughs> they used something from Penthouse. In this. <laughs> so that that's why they didn't put it in syndication as much. <laughs> a little scandalous. Well, the part I, since I was a kid, the one thing I've always thought was really ridiculous about that, though, is that Scotty, you know, like you say, he's bouncing the image off the satellite, whatever, blah blah blah, technical babble bullshit. And every shot that they're showing is that you know that, that helicopter pan around, except for when he finally gets Gary Seven. I keep wanting to say Gary Mitchell, Gary Seven <laughs> on the on the gantry. Then it's perfectly clear and it's crisp and it never pans or you know what i mean and, yeah. and that's that you know it just makes it jump out that here's your stock footage okay here's the new stuff that we filmed <laughs> right you know? and, and it just doesn't quite blend it, it, i don't think it ever has well i but. always pictured it this way scotty was looping around trying to look for him and then once he got him he was just like boom that's I my guess. no prize for it yeah <laughs> But now, ever since I was a little kid, I have called this dude Steve McQueen. I still don't know what the hell the actor's name really is, but he does so he looks remind like me Steve of Steve McQueen, McQueen with with like staple scars under his lips. Like he's got those two lines, like somebody <laughs> stapled his lips when he was a kid. He looks like Steve McQueen. He looks modern day like Daniel Craig. Yeah, he and does. I was watching it. I'm like, this guy is James Bond mixed with Doctor Who. He even has a sonic screwdriver. Yeah, I love that. I always thought that was cool. I wonder if they've ever sold it. Because, you know, you can find sonic screwdrivers in, like, any comic shop in the country now. But I I wonder if they ever sold that. uh, What did he call it? He had a name for it. Now I can't remember what what the hell he called it. Oh, shit. The Golden Kong Vibe. Oh, wait. No, that's something else. I have totally forgotten what he called the thing. He had a name for it, though. (laughs) Oh, I'm looking Sonic here at pliers, the... <laughs> audio well, it's, pliers. It's basically like a, a Sonic Bic is what it because it's just like. A oh, well, I mean, I'm really wondering if they didn't adapt that from Doctor Who. You know, Doctor Who was definitely going on at this time. I'm right. So, I'm wondering if they didn't just if they didn't like literally say let's graph Doctor Who with with James Bond, right, and throw a hot chicky chicken there and off we go i'm looking here at his uh his entry on uh on memory what the hell is the name of that device it's gonna make me nuts now could you figure out um exactly what they remastered on this I'm wondering if the one that I watched was the remastered because I, I was watching it off of Netflix and I just assumed it was remastered, but I didn't see. Well, when they the opener was Earth, just, there's a yeah, the beautiful shot of Earth yeah. and the moon. 
Yeah, that's it just right. the yeah. moon is just a sliver. But that's yeah. all. Uh, that's uh, the one that I saw that was obvious. I think like when they have like the stages of the. Ro- I think they cleaned up that NASA footage because yeah. I remember yeah, it being really grainy and messed up. And in this, it's crisp, crystal clear. And so I think they might have used some, you know, remastered NASA shot. Otherwise, there really wasn't much. I think they added a few little light jiggles around the sonic screwdriver. And that's about it. They should have morphed the cat into the hot... Hot, um... Catwoman. Catwoman slash Black Canary... They don't typically do anything with with shots. You know, it's always like the special effects shots that they go back in and, and you there's, know, the space shots. Yeah, there's very not a lot to mess change. with in this. Like the yeah. like his his safe that he transports in with the fog in it is pretty cool as it is. You know, the original effect is actually pretty effective and cool. And I like that they stole the the actual, you know, transporter room effect. Um, sound effect for his transporter which meant if it did spin on into another show you would have had the Star Trek sound effect spin off with it I found it very implausible that the Star Trek crew was just casually time traveling at that point Yeah, let's just time travel to do a little history research you know dumpty dumpty dum you know they were you know I mean at this point, it's like usually if you're traveling back in time in Star Trek, it's because you accidentally got slingshotted or you really are desperate to do something. This they were just going. So this made it seem like, ah, let's just travel through time now and start gathering information, you know. I never saw as a story element in Star Trek after that, you know. But, you know. It was uh, everything Star Trek wise was forced to fit into the Gary Seven narrative. Servo, that's what that thing was called. His servo, that that pen device. Oh, okay. I did not think of the name of that damn thing. It was making me crazy. I, I wondered what all that silence on your end was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying something. to because it was it was gonna make me nuts. Um, make you nuts. <laughs> Do you notice there at the at the beginning of the of the show when uh, Spock is talking to the different department heads and stuff, it cuts to engineering and Scotty's there. Scotty walks towards the camera and then he walks laterally, and the the uh, monitor that Kirk and Spock are watching him on, of course, pans with him as he's walking. Yes, <laughs> it's like these are these are brilliant. <laughs> you know, computer controlled cameras, you know, that they have in the in the twenty well, third century that well, know when to zoom like in that. on a close up. We and... have cameras like that 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 like I mean everybody now when you when you pick up your camera and take a aim it at someone and you're looking at the screen on it, there's a little square over the face. Right. You know, it's doing all that. So you would think that they would have a little little automatic film editor <laughs> program. Yeah, right. It's very creative. I mean, it's doing the work of a human cameraman and keeping all the action in the right. But I mean, shot. it's so intuitive that it knows when to do the dramatic close-up. And, oh yeah, 
Yeah, oh, I mean, they found whatever algorithm it is to, uh, you know, simulate a, a mid-20th century um, TV hack film, you know, <laughs> TV director. <laughs> that they, they got it on that setting. Sometimes Kirk gets fancy and puts it on, like, the Stanley Kubrick setting where it'll do long, <laughs> steady cam shots. To the... <laughs> Sometimes he puts it on the, like triple x rating where it does it just travels along the floor and looks up all the short skirts <laughs> now, short skirt alert in this one man oh yeah definitely i know that's what you were watching for i like her i i never thought she was like a you know a, a raving sex pot or anything but i i like her there's I like something Terry about her there's something about her and I don't know what it is because she usually doesn't play characters like that. Her characters aren't the kind of girls that I'm attracted to. But I see through all that and see the Terry Gar. <laughs> Mostly because of the shrine I set up was helped me to see the way it was. But now, did you ever watch uh, Friends? No. Was she on Friends? She. Are you familiar with it at all? Mm-hmm. The character of Phoebe tracks down her real mom at one point. And it's Terry and Gar. It's Terry Gar. And I always thought that was a brilliant bit of casting, but it struck me again watching this episode because there was a moment. It was one of the first things she did when we first meet her character in this episode. I can't remember what it was specifically, where, where but they she did been. something. And I was like, damn, that's Phoebe right from Friends. I mean, you know, years before then. Yeah. yeah, but it was it was She's the same so mannerisms and yeah, I she mean, has to it, be like twenty years old or something, like yeah. 20, 21 years old. Like but, uh, I was watching it and going, like usually I'm looking at Terry Gar and thinking of her as the older woman, you know, right? Looking yeah. at her and going, wow, this this girl would be like out of <laughs> out of my hitting on range now. <laughs> yeah, you need to see that sometime. I think you'd get a kick out of it because uh, yeah, what a perfect bit of casting that was. I like that uh, when when Kirk, I think he orders somebody to do it. I don't think he does it himself, but he calls down or has somebody call down to ship stores for 20th century clothes. He calls them costumes. We need some costumes. Yes. And as somebody whose work uniform is a costume, I just thought I, that just struck me as funny. I thought that that was really cool. Yeah, it's you know, that, more actors than... Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. you would say like garb or something like that. Yeah, garb or clothes or yeah. And they get Kirk a Gilligan hat for the second time he goes down. Like <laughs> the hat you'd see on like some like Hunter S. Thompson or some college frat boy at that time, you know. It's hilarious. <laughs> and man, they just stomp through the continuum. They don't care. They beam up cops. They beam, you know. That, I do not remember that part at all. That that was one of my biggest notes for this. Is that I, now I have seen this episode I remember a good the, number of times since we were kids, but I do not remember the part with the cops. I wonder if that was a syndication cut when we were kids. No, because I remember. I remember the look that that one the one cop gave the other one, and then he says like Scully or something like you know. Right. He says some sort of you know. Right. Just sort of like we shouldn't have drank that, you know, gin for <laughs> our shift. Right. And there's a, I, I like how the servo uh, 
the servo is sort of like a happy Vulcan nerve pinch. It makes people all happy and goofy. And I was, and I was, I, I man, I want to see an assignment Earth TV show because I'd like to see the servo used in more. Because it seems it makes people suggestible too. So he right. could probably like use people as his minions as the story went on and stuff. It was great. It was a great little piece of world, non-Star Trek world building, but world building nonetheless. I would have liked to have seen him use it on Spock. I wonder yes. what reaction he'd have gotten using that, using that on Spock. Well, doesn't Spock try to nerve pinch him and he and can't it in this work. one? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was cool, too. Well, you know... And I want an, I want a secret apartment like that with a with a computer <laughs> behind the wine glass. I'm like waiting for those wine glasses to go flying off the wall when and break and stuff. But I I want that. I want I want to come in and have my wall turn around with a computer that can do anything and a safe that I can transport in. That's all I. Need. I wanted it to turn around one time though, and, and instead of being that computer, which I think is the same one that's the Atavacron. In um, oh shit, what the hell's that episode with Mr. Atos? Oh right, um, all our yesterdays. Yeah, I think it's the same computer. But one time I wanted him to turn that wall around, and instead of being being that computer, it was actually Batgirl's Bat Cycle. One time, funny. <laughs> but you were talking before about how they're just very casually mucking about with time in this when they've they've gone they've used what I'm assuming what Kirk meant was the slingshot effect. That they end up using again in uh, in Star Trek Four. I'm assuming that's the method they've used to go back in time, but it's very casual in the whole right. thing. You know, what I mean, they they don't seem to have any rules or any compunction about just going, you know, beaming down, screwing around with stuff. That's why it's got so, that throwaway. We just need an excuse for them to be here. You know? Right? Yeah. Exactly. So that being the nature of it, if they're being this willy nilly and this casual about it, then why all the drama if they get themselves in a jam or if things go horribly wrong or if Kirk does make the wrong decision in either trusting or not trusting seven and it all goes wrong check the history yeah, you tape just, you just sling around the sun again and try again right you just right you know, or or be, what they could have done in, in the very beginning is check the history tapes to see what happened on that day which they do afterwards afterwards right and apparently Gary seven working secretly becomes part of the public record because they have the cheesiest tie-in ending where they're like, and you two are about to have a lot of amazing adventures, ha ha ha. Right. Or maybe you're not because your series didn't get picked and up. Sorry. You actually <laughs> won't, right, until John <laughs> Byrne comes along. <laughs> Do you notice all seven dwarfs are in this one? What? They are. Where? You, got, uh, you got Kirk, Spock, McCoy, oh, and then uh, yeah. Scotty, Ahura, Chekhov, and Sulu are in this one. So you got everybody in this one. I, and in the most <laughs> fluffy Star Trek scenario ever. Yep. Especially for them. Yeah. Well, uh, Sulu and Chekhov, it's it's almost like an afterthought. Right. It, it, does, it really does have that kind of, that, that cheesy, like, celebrity... Show you know like a like a variety show skit kind of feel when it, was, it comes to the enterprise. Well, that sequences. was very part and parcel of TV in those days, right up into the seventies. Right. You know where they would spin off an episode. First, it started off 
Well, in the seventies, there oh, was a yeah, lot of yeah. organic you know, we're, ones we're, where, like, like the Mork episode of Happy Days or right. something like that. Yeah, right. yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and and where it would be sort of a weird episode and kind of stilted, you know, right. because they were forcing something into that. So I mean, sometimes it worked naturally, like you know, the Jeffersons getting Jeffersons, their show off yeah. of Archie Bunker or something like. Actually, a lot of people. <laughs> Got a show off Archie Bunker. I think Maud, Rhoda, um, and and the Jeffersons at least all got shows off Archie Bunker. But that was just because they were characters that were popular characters. Right. I don't believe that they brought any of them in. Well, maybe they did. I don't know what what the planning of Archie Bunker was. But there was there was a lot of that stiltedness going on, or whatever. They'd have a guest star, or sometimes they would do crossovers and stuff like that, and it was always awkward, you know. Or or they would do like, here's a you know like the Brady Bunch go to Hawaii, which was an excuse to take everybody to Hawaii. Right. The show was always just sort of a fluffy story, filmed. Or, Let's go to these. You know, scenic places at, at <laughs> the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> That's what this was. This was the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island Star Trek episode. <laughs> this was this was Batman and Robin meet Phyllis Diller. <laughs> <laughs> and I never uh, liked it because I thought it was just like kind of a throwaway episode. But now that I watch it, it's just like man. I, I want. It would have been so great if that show spun off. You know, I could totally yeah. see the potential of a really good show there. I wonder what the hell the Steve McQueen guy. What he ever went on to do anyway? I don't know that I've ever seen him in anything else. I he looks familiar, but then again, he looks like Daniel Craig and Steve McQueen. So. <laughs> Let's see here. Robert Lansing is his name. Why the hell can't I remember that? That's my dad's name. Robert Lansing? Well, Lansing. He's, he's done he's done he's been in movies and stuff. I know that. His name's fairly familiar. He's played a secret agent. Oh, imagine that. Yeah. Ah, he was on Auto Man. Oh. Jesus. He was uh Lieutenant Jack Curtis on Auto Man. I do not remember that. I you know, I downloaded that. How many episodes didn't that ago? only last like three oh, episodes or something? No, it was no, it was more than that, but not. it was not long. I want to say like 13, maybe. I downloaded the entire series of Auto Man not long ago and was so excited to find that on the internet. I made it about an and episode. And the reality of it was, I remember when it was on. I remember catching the pilot episode when it was on, and there were some neat points in it that were almost Tron-like, if I remember. Well, that was the thing, is it was Tron in reverse, is that instead of him going into the world of the computer like in Tron and then everything in the in the you know in, in the computer was like it looked in Tron instead it was the other way around you Which had a lot cheaper Tron come out of the computer a lot cheaper so to that film. he was in his glowy uniform and he had what do they call it cursor was bit you know from from Tron right. so he had his little flying companion and then he had the car so instead of having a light cycle he had a car but the car was the the neon outline and all that. Yeah. So, but I mean, it, visually stunning, but everything else about it was just flat shit. It was really bad. I mean, the acting was horrible. <laughs> 
the plots were inane. It was it was really bad. So it's not surprising it didn't last. But uh, visually, it was really cool because the the way they made his uniform in that you know the special effect that they used was just cool. You know, but uh, all I remember was him you know gearing up into his suit. That I don't remember. I thought he was always in the suit, wasn't he? No, he had some sort of flat, almost like coffin-like thing that I think he laid down in. I, that's how I seem to remember it. You know, you're you're talking yeah. about my brain. Yeah, when I, I was a I little kid. Huh? Yeah, there's a whole write-up on this guy, but it's not. I mean, it, he it looked like he was pretty much just kind of a bit player, unfortunately. This is his last role was uh, on Kung Fu: The Legend Continues. So, yeah. Oh my God! Well, that was in the nineties. Yeah, well, he died in ninety-four. It says October twenty-third, ninety-four, age sixty-six. What a shame. I, I liked him though. I I really do. I I think he. Uh, it's it's a shame he wasn't more, you know, better known or more successful because I think he would have made a, a good like Bond-like character. I mean, it says here he played you know those kind of characters a couple of times, secret agents and different things. But looks like for the most part he was just kind of a. You know, I don't know if character actor is quite the right word, but yeah. Just kind of jumped around from TV show to TV show. Interesting. Very interesting. But I do like this one, though. I, I really do dig this episode a lot. And uh, I, I love the incorporation of all the, you know, the Saturn V stuff and Kennedy and all that was really cool to watch. And. I, I wish I had made a, a note of the exact thing that Kirk says at the beginning of the episode. It, it would be very, it'd be so easy to just miss it. But if you're in the mindset of remembering when this was filmed, when this was created, what hadn't really happened in the world yet at the time that this episode was being made, right. Kirk makes a reference to the era that they're in that hadn't actually happened yet, but it's incredibly prophetic. Because he talks about, I mean, they they put a date on this episode that they are in the year 1968. Well, at the time they're filming the episode, I it's thought they were there to try to prevent our birth. That's what I thought. <laughs> heard it. But Uh-oh. you know, he, he's talking about 68 and and you know the tumultuous events and blah 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 and what an important pivotal moment in history and right, all that. Right, that's being born. Which is really true because 1968 was one of the most tumultuous years of the entire 20th century. And an incredibly pivotal moment of the 20th century. I mean, you had the assassin just weeks, weeks or maybe even days. I forget. I was just looking at this. But uh, within a very short time of this episode airing, uh, you had uh, King was assassinated. And then in that same year, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And then at the end of the year, uh, Apollo 11 or excuse me, Apollo 8, rather Apollo 8 circumnavigated the moon. So you had men going to the moon for the very first time. And, you know, I mean, lots of other stuff. You had the race riots and all these crazy things that were going on in Nam and just, you know, it was just a horrible... That time period, people thought they could be wiped off the earth at any second. Oh, yeah. From the 50s into that time period, people were living with that hanging over their head. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just, I thought it was very prophetic some of the things that Kirk said 
And like I say, it would be so easy to miss that when you're watching the episode because you know if if you're if you know and you're familiar a little bit with that era, just go, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. But stop and think a minute. No, they didn't know that. There's no way they could have known that. But again, Star Trek, you know, accurately predicting you know things to come, which I thought was pretty cool. I like Terry Gar's hippie line about the times too, where she was just like, maybe that's why some of my generation are looked at as being so wild or you know wacky right. or something like that right total that <laughs> reminds me of like a hippie out of like an archie comic or something like that you know right or you know the boy wonder in a 60s comic like hey batman you square <laughs> don't you know that the kids are swinging in a different direction called peace man that's what needed to happen was Oh, the Gary Seven meeting up with Batman and Robin with the, with the Adam West. No, with the animated Batman and Robin. Oh, that'd, okay. That'd be even wackier. <laughs> we, most kids are like, "Who the hell are these guys?" Gary Seven and and Roberta Lincoln on Scooby Doo. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, now we're just getting silly. Well, this is another one scratched off the list, so we're we're getting down to the nitty-gritty on these things now. I'm hoping my list is accurate, but I believe that it is. I, I think I've kept up with it pretty well. well so let's, let's see, what episode number was this? This was... Oh, hell, I don't know. Oh, here it is, 55, it said. All right, so I'll scratch that one off the list. So what do you got? what do you got for the next one? All right, I'm firing up the computer. Oh, the smell this thing makes. It's horrible. I think Sorry there's a dead that. Tribble in it. Oh, you mean the computer. Yeah, I think it's heating up and like there's a dead Tribble just like stinking up the place. Oh, ooh, oh, speaking of stinking up the place, number two. Number two. Number two is Charlie X. Have we done Charlie X yet? We have not done Charlie X. We have not done Charlie X. All right. Charlie X. Man, we should try to get Uncle Randy for that one. I know, you know, we tried to get him for this one, and I'm not sure what the hell happened with that, unfortunately. But, uh, yes, I, I, we gotta get him for that one. He, that's one of his favorite episodes. He'll sing, yeah, he, he'll tell us, he'll make us disappear, too. He'll sing us this Charlie is Our Sweetheart song. <laughs> we gotta get All that crazy bastard it. for that episode. I'm telling you, we gotta get him. An automated voice oh. messaging system. Maybe it's the wrong. Randy Gardner <laughs> is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. To leave a callback number, press 5. Oh, I'm smashed. It's cold. You gotta come pick me up. <laughs> Yeah, come on. Run! <laughs> Alfred. <laughs> so cold. Uh, answer the goddamn phone! I wonder if we're calling the right phone. I don't know. Is it still recording? Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, hang up. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can email 2 True Freaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com 2 True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.